0: This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.
1: What a complete pleasure and delight it is to be here with my teacher and um, dear companion of the way, Joan Sutherland and to celebrate the release of her new book, Through Forests of Every Color, Awakening with Zen Koans. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
2: Hi, Megan, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for doing this with me.
1: Yeah, this is gonna be fun. So, Joan, I thought maybe we could just start for people who aren't familiar with Zen. Maybe you could just say a a little bit about uh, the Zen tradition and and how it's uh, different from other Buddhist traditions. Well, first, I have to do a little thing here, which is... um,
2: I don't so much think of myself as Zen anymore because of the evolution of of um, the way that we sort of hold the koans, and but I think of myself as a koan teacher, and that has um, threads from Zen and also threads from Chan, which is the Chinese uh, origin of the koans. Actually, and Chan and Zen are the same words, pronounced differently in the in the two languages. Um, and they are quite different. that's a that's a um a big question. Um and i, I maybe the thing I want to say about that um for right now is that it's a um it's a practice that works with the dynamic quality of the heart mind and it's a practice of inquiry. And so it has different forms of meditation than other schools of Buddhism. and um if you want, I can read just a little bit from the beginning of the book that kind of introduces where it comes from and how it it um is its own thing. So would, would this be a good time to just yeah, start wonderful. with that? Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: Um and and again, chan is the Chinese pronunciation of the word pronounced zen in Japanese. Koan study emerged in Chan about a thousand years ago. The scholar Wa Jia describes Chan's shift in emphasis as one from pacifying, cultivating, and contemplating the mind to letting the mind be free. And that's my deepest answer to your, your question about what the difference is. Koan introspection, as this new practice came to be called, was transmitted through East and Southeast Asia, particularly Korea, Japan, and Vietnam, and from there it is spread to many parts of the world. It's been in North America for less than 100 years. This is a living tradition evolving through eras, landscapes, and cultures. The koans have always pulled for the particular genius of each new group of people who take them up. In the beginning, Chan teachers and students were having conversations during which one or more of the participants would have an opening. Then they discovered that if other people who could be quite distant in time and space brought the story of that conversation into their meditation, they could experience the same thing the participants in the original conversation had. Not a lesson or even an understanding about awakening, but awakening itself. Records of these conversations were the first koans. Pretty soon, teachers were trying out bits of poems and songs, quotes from scriptures, common sayings, and folk tales, borrowing from both classical literature and popular culture. And the same thing continued to happen. How it happens is the dark mysterious of the koan tradition. So that's the tradition walking toward us in a way. And very briefly here, this is us walking toward the tradition. We set out with lives shaped like wondering. In the beginning, we're looking perhaps for some kind of answer, an answer to the shared questions about life, death and meaning, or to the question uniquely formed within our own lives, the thing that aches on some days and causes a sudden pain on others. Or we're propelled by intimations of another world inside this one, a softly glowing world in which the defining characteristics are not limitation and repetition, but something more spacious and at ease. How do we get closer to that? Perhaps we have both kinds of questions at the same time, which barely leaves energy to pack for the journey. Eventually, perhaps, we lay those questions down in hope or desperation on a particular doorstep, and we're met not by an answer, but by another question. Perhaps we pick the new question up. It comes with a simple tag. Here's another way to ask your question. A way people have been asking your question for a long time. Keep company with it and you'll soon notice it emits a soft glow in whose light your questions look different. The questions you carry with you look like a pilgrimage. The question you've been given starts to look like shelter.
1: Thank you for that. That's really um, just lovely and inspiring and um, offers um, yeah, hope for all of us in our practice. (laughs) Thank you. I'd love to just ask you a few questions about koans, um, especially for people Mm -hmm. who might not be too familiar with them. Mm -hmm. Koans have a a reputation for being puzzling or mysterious Mm -hmm. or impenetrable. Mm -hmm. There's an idea that koans are meant to short circuit our rational minds.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: can you speak to that
2: yeah um i think that the there's some something certainly true about their meaning to get underneath our normal cognition our normal ways of thinking about things and feeling about things and so they can begin by seeming um puzzling or strange or they don't make sense in the usual ways we think of making sense but that's just a that's um that's on the way to something else. And the thing it's on the way to is um getting again underneath the usual our usual habits of heart and mind so that all of us can come to the question. Um our our histories, our bodies, our psyches, our intuitions, you know, all of that could come in and we take up the question and we come into relationship with the question with our whole selves rather than having the cognitive mind be um in control or the only way we're relating to it and so when that happens when we engage the whole self in that way they don't seem so puzzling anymore. There, there, there's something true about them from that perspective. And they might still, some of them are quite mysterious and they might still be mysterious, but the mystery feels intriguing and inviting and interesting. Um, certainly also sometimes perplexing and, um, and discouraging and all of that. But if we stay with it, we get to intriguing and um, and mysterious in a good way.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, 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 may, I wanna maybe just dig a little deeper into some of what you're saying. Um, do koans help us with our emotional life? I mean, are they mostly sort of philosophical or spiritual or are they actually relevant to my sorrow, my fear, my anger? the things that are happening, you know, for me in my own life that cause me, you know, distress.
2: Yeah, absolutely they are. I mean the way we work with koans is that we bring our whole selves to them whatever whatever is going on with us and they operate at a lot of different levels but one of them is certainly the the level of of the emotional life and there's a piece in the in the new book which is about a woman who was filled with grief. She lost her partner at a young age and was came to a monastery looking for some kind of help with the grief she was feeling. And what she came to find was that um, grief was the Buddha of that time in her life. And when she asked about what is this, what is this practice, her teacher said to her, the heart of the one who asks is Zen, and so there's that sense of exactly where your heart is, even if it's full of grief. That's where you begin, and that is Zen. That's and so she comes into um, relationship with the the, the um, Buddha of grief in her life, and it's not about. It curing her or her curing it, but keeping company with it and listening and being willing to stay in the silence and be patient and find out what it's calling from her. and that and, and there's a beautiful story that I tell in in the book about what happens as she as she sits in the dark with the um, the grief Buddha and um, how in the end, it opens something very large in her.
1: Yeah, that's uh, wonderful, and, and definitely you know accords with with my own experience of of koan work as well. And maybe a little bit later we can talk more about kind of um, you know how koans actually work in a, a person's life. Great. Um, yeah. But I and just another question about the tradition. Um, you know, koans. The koan tradition arose in the time of monasticism, patriarchy and racial homogeny. And so I'm wondering, how is the tradition evolving in the West to speak to our lives that include issues of lay life, gender, sexuality, power, and inequality?
2: Mm-hmm. Um- I just I just want to acknowledge that we're asking really, really big questions. And so my answers are going to sort of have a broad brush quality that probably isn't really going to do them justice. But, um, you know, so broad brush speaking, um, you know, the koans did begin in a particular context. There's no question about that. And um, we mostly in the West tended to receive them at a time of. in in a kind of conservative way. And by conservative, I mean with a sense of preserving things as, you know, as closely as possible. Um, And I think that that's led to some misconceptions about the koans because I think that they are, um, although they come to us from particular cultures and have much of those cultures embedded in them, um, we have our own relationship to them, and we will—we are developing that relationship and bringing our questions, which will be different questions because we're different people in a different time. We're bringing our questions to the koans um, and there, thereby enlarging the tradition, I think, um, as, as the tradition enlarges us. It's a sort of mutual enlargement going on. Um, and... And that's a very, it's beautiful for me to see that. And I think that the cons lend themselves to that because on the, the big questions that you just um, kind of listed there, they don't have sort of bullet lists about how to think about them. They don't have a, a do- doctrines about how to think about those really important things. What they do have are suggestions about ways to inquire into things, suggestions about ways to explore things that are different and sometimes problematic and painful and sometimes wonderful and so that's their power you can take them to any question you can bring any question to them and um, they will give you ways of engaging with those questions rather than telling you how you ought to feel about them or what you want to do about them
1: yeah yeah that's lovely and I love that it's, you know, as you said, a kind of a, a living tradition, and one that is shaping. We're shaping as it's shaping us. Yeah, it feels really true. It's it's alive, you know. Yeah, it's alive. There's cool. a, there's a great Joe koan.
2: Cohen. Um, um, it, it what is meditation? It's not meditation. Why isn't it meditation? It's alive.
1: It's alive. Yeah. 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 Well, and as you, you mentioned when we were speaking before, you know, one of the, one of the ways we can tell it's alive is that you and I, two women, koan meditation teachers are here talking,
3: Mm
1: -hmm. you know, and that's, you know, that's a, a a Western phenomenon mostly and, and a really lovely one. And I think that um, among many other things, you know, women are adding our voices and our um, lives uh, to the, the koan conversation.
2: Yeah, there are um, some traditions I'm most familiar with with China and Japan, and so I'll, I'll speak about about a little bit with Korea. And there are certainly some traditions of um, women teachers and women teaching women, and, and they're so precious, you know. And one of the reasons they're so precious is because they're they're rare, um, and our our knowledge and understanding of them is um, based on on scant precious rare information and so one of the most exciting things for me in my teaching life has been the way that the voices of 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 women have come in to the tradition and um and and changed it in, in ways that i think are um probably good for all of us
1: yeah i think so too So in your book, you know, you talk about how many people associate Zen practice with enlightenment, and yet uh, you describe a process that happens in koan work that you call endarkenment. Mm -hmm. Can you describe endarkenment and how it might interplay with enlightenment?
2: Yeah, yeah okay so again broad brush warning (laughs) um but it is in the book it's 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 explored more in the book um enlightenment i think is is a real thing and i feel like it's gotten kind of obscured behind clouds of our projections and our longings about it um and so i I started really just thinking about, well, what am I actually experiencing in my own practice? And what are my students experiencing in their practices? And it became really clear to me that um, kind of, again, in general, if enlightenment has to do with experiences that show us what we know, you know, they open us to a kind of um, bright insight and a kind of depth of experience of the world. Um, it's, so it's about, it's about what we come to know, what we come to have confidence in. Um, there's a, a complementary process, which is darkenment, which is coming to understand that at the center of the temple, there's a deep well that we can't see to the bottom of. There is a mystery at the heart of things. And that's a particularly Chan idea, which came out of Taoism. Taoism talks about the origin of everything in the dark mysterious and that sense of a dark mysterious at the center of everything came into the koans and is very much there and it's really important to understand what you can't know as 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 important as it is to understand what you can know and um there's something quite beautiful about exploring the dark and exploring what we can't know and coming to rest in that and trust that. So that's one part of endarkenment is that sense of the, you know, the, the vast unseen ocean that we ride on the very top of. And the other sense of it is that it's about opening ourselves to the, um, the great broken heart of the world Um, and, um, that's a big part of this process too. It's not just about, um, becoming certain about things and knowing things and understanding things. It's also about really pressing our own hearts up against the great broken heart of the world and saying, yes, yes. This is it too. This is um, this is the great matter. This and I am not separate from this, and it is not separate from me. And how then do I live um, in this world that is both glorious and devastating at the same time, and not turning away from any of that? Yeah,
1: lovely. Yeah, thank you. So, so Jen, I thought, you know, we might go just a little off script here, you know, and um, <laughs> <laughs> the k- Koans are like fundamentally off script. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, people might, might be wondering, you know, what, what does Koan practice actually look like these mm-hmm. days? Like, mm-hmm. how do people do this? You know, if, if somebody's interested in Koan practice, you know, w- what, what might that uh, how does that manifest and what does a person do and what does it, how does it work in a person's life?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I thought, you know, maybe we could just talk about our relationship as an example of that and how it's unfolded and how we've worked together over the decades. And, and, um, and I can talk a little bit about how that has intersected also with my development as a psychologist. And, you know, these are different ways of exploring the mind. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe we can also talk about um, kind of similarities and differences in the approach to suffering and the nature of the mind.
2: That sounds great. So why don't you start, you know, you were a very young woman when, when we first met. Let's so start. what 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 was up with that? What were you doing?
1: Yeah, I was. It was uh, I think it was the mid 90s when we first met. And I had already been studying Zen uh, with another teacher for a little bit, um, and and then we met, and um, I think made a, a, a really great connection. And I was so thrilled, uh, well, I just adored you, but I was also so thrilled to be able to work with a woman teacher.
3: Mm.
1: And especially at that time, it was very rare, a very rare and, and a precious thing. And it felt to me like, you know, an amazing opportunity. And I just had all of the big questions that I think bring many people to spiritual practice, my own suffering, but also just the kind of questions about the, the you know, what is this, this life and what is the nature of things and what happens when we die and, you know, just a, a real calling mm-hmm. to the big questions. Mm-hmm. And um, so we took up koan practice And it felt like, it felt like in the beginning, a way of pouring my questions and my longing and kind of sort of focusing them Mm. into the question of the koan. Mm. And um, it it was a great relief to have a place to put a lot of longing and a lot of drive and a um, a lot of energy. And um, it it felt like you were able to help me in the idiom of the koans, not just to answer the questions, but to maybe ask more interesting questions Hmm. or to to explore the questions themselves, Mm -hmm. not just getting to answers, but to really um, sort of enlarge the whole field.
2: So let's talk a little bit about what that looked like, you know, yeah. just to, which was um, we would be in retreat and I would be doing work in the room, which is basically where I would just sit in a little room, usually in some, you know, outbuilding on the edge of the retreat center, which I think is where you are now in somewhere. Um And, you know, an altar with candlelight and we would start before dawn. And when I say all of this, you know, I have to say that it's, um, it feels like one of the great privileges of my life that, that I would, that I would sit in that room next to that altar and people would come in and talk to me, you know, people like you, how, how amazing that was. And so you had been out sitting in, in the meditation hall and you would come in for work in the room and what, what made you decide that you wanted to come in and do work in the room? Was there like an impetus?
1: Sometimes I thought I had some insight and sometimes you would um, clear that clear that, that delusion for me. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it felt like wanting, I, I think sometimes about the koan where um, the student says to the teacher, you know, I, I, I'm pecking from the inside, you peck from the outside, please. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was working hard, you know, on my, in the retreat and my meditation cushion and, you know, it felt like I needed um, a peck Mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had something to share or to say, sometimes I just needed to make contact. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you, you could help me with um, sort of deepen or shift directions. Um, And, you know, as we worked on koans, it was also um, very much about a relationship that was forming between us, mm-hmm. and that felt really like a, a, an essential part of it as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, so y- you begin with a first koan. Um, everybody begins with a first koan. If you're if you're doing kind of formal individual koan study, and you stay with that first koan for most people for quite a good while until something opens up and one of the things i talk about in the book is that i think of enlightenment as a very particular thing which is a kind of experience that happens with that that first koan when something really opens up and then from there you go to other koans and in our um, curriculum. There's 750 of them, so there's a there's a long way to go, and the, and each one is different. Each one has its own quality and its own flavor, and it it illuminates a certain part of the the whole field of awakening. So we should probably just stop for a second and say that enlightenment and endarkenment, for me, this is my little weird idea, um, are are part of this arc of awakening that that each of us is is on and um it's it, you know it 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 takes the shape of a human life and it lasts as long as a human life and there are enlightening experiences there are and darkening experiences within that but the awakening is the is the long arc of things and so that would be that's what we shared in our relationship and and One of the things that's so beautiful about the work in the room relationship to me is that it's a conversation whose one subject is your awakening, is the, you know, is the student's awakening and how wonderful that is, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we did many long retreats together Mm -hmm. and met often daily during those retreats, Mm -hmm. working on koans. We also sometimes met outside of retreat and um you know had other meetings that were working on koans and 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 we met in other contexts we had meditation a a meditation community that we're part of Mm -hmm. uh, many other kinds of activities and ways of being together and learning and growing together uh, in the context of community
2: yeah yeah indeed
1: and you know during those first years that we were working together i um started my doctoral program in clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. And so part of my experience was a, a just a very deep dive into the nature of suffering, the nature of healing, and the nature of the mind from two very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And um, it to- took me a long time to kind of grok all of that, you know, because they were coming, kind of the, the sort of Koan perspective and then the Western psychological perspective are both incredibly valuable and they're mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe we could talk about that difference.
2: Yeah, sure. Do you want like, to start?
1: Oh, boy. Well, you know, I, I've come to see them sort of like two wings of a bird and that they're, they're for me, I'll just speak for myself. They've both been essential. and they offer just sort of different takes, sort of like two sides of a coin mm-hmm. the The Western psychology perspective, um, and I you know went on to study psychoanalysis and depth perspectives, um, you know, really involves getting to know your individual human mind, your habits, your history, um, your unconscious, and um, to to do kind of personal healing work. And that was something that was, you know, really essential for me. And um, I, I think is, is really valuable to many, many people. Mm. The Zen tradition, I, I would say focuses on enlarging the self uh, and instead of It's not that we never focus or we don't focus on our individual suffering or our individual story. We certainly can, but it's in service of, of kind of coming to see it from a a bigger perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, one in which, um, our mind is is just one little shard of a, of a vast, um, awareness that we Mm -hmm. partake of Mm -hmm. and that, um, that, but that that awareness is is not actually personal. It's something that we share with the whole world around us. Mm. So um, maybe you could expand upon that in your in, in your language.
2: Well, one of the ways I think about the I like your thing with the the two wings of the bird. One of the ways I think about the two wings is is um psychology has a lot to do in my amateur experience with finding what story you're in and sometimes finding the right story is really, really important. You know, when you, when you can go, Oh, I'm psyche in the underworld, you know, then suddenly there's a way to approach what's happening in your life, a way to hold it, a way to explore it. And you have the wisdom, you know, of all these, um, all these traditions, the psychological tradition, the mythic tradition, the poetic tradition, all of that, that have, that have um, addressed what it's like to be psyche in the underworld. And, and that can be incredibly helpful. So there's that, as you, you know, it's another way of saying the same thing you said, which is it's an exploration of a particular person and a particular life. And then the koans do this thing where it's like, what what's it like not to have a story at all? What's it like not to have a position? And th- that's um, a really different way of looking at it. So the, you know, the Cohen question would be, who's in the underworld? And it becomes an exploration of that who, which you were just talking about that who, which is the larger sense of, of things. And I don't think that one is true and the other isn't. I think they're both true simultaneously and that they really, as as enlightenment and endarkment do, they amplify and complete and heal each other in some ways, and so I think that they're a really powerful thing. And I think the Koans in particular, acknowledge that in the sense that you've got um, that large that large view, that big view, um, and and then you also have um, what is technically called tatagata, which is to really see. The particularity of of each being and each thing that you that you encounter, and um, it's it, my favorite. You know, it's they use words like like suchness and thusness and stuff. The suchness of someone, the thusness of something, but I, I like James Joyce's the whatness of a thing. Mm-hmm. So um, you look at the whatness of a thing, which is the thing that makes them that thing that person completely particular and themselves. And that calls from us a certain obligation, you know, to to really see and take place with the whatness of another person. And that large perspective where we see that we're kin in in a very big way with that other person, that calls something else from us. So a way we used to talk about it a long time ago was that, the, the the large perspective, perspective, the perspective of oneness and interpermeation and all of that is kind of we all have the same last name. We come to understand that we all have the same last name. And then the Tathagata perspective, the whatness perspective is, and each of us has our own given name that's different. And both of those things are true. And both of those things have a claim on us in terms of how we we treat each person and each thing that we encounter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. And, you know, maybe another thing to say about, you know, my experience in studying koans is that, you know, I was always in our tradition is a lay tradition. Mm -hmm. I was, I've never been a priest or a monastic Mm -hmm. and, um, that you know as we were doing con study together at the very same time i was you know working and being a parent mm-hmm. and managing a household and um so you know i was very involved in the the particularities of life the 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 dilemmas and the <laughs> strains of regular life and i found that what the cons offered me I think you've talked about it the koans as a way of sort of tossing ourselves back and forth between the the world of the vastness and the regular world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so that they just sort of interpermeate each other. And that's really true to my experience that um, at first it felt like these are kind of separate domains, you know? And Mm -hmm. there's like my spiritual life, my Zen life, and then there's my regular life. But the koans really helped be to find the ways that the koans were speaking not to some abstract principle but actually to my lived experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that you can bring the koans with you you can carry them around
2: with you and bring them th- throughout not only your waking life but your sleeping life your dreaming life as well and um and and you so we talk about keeping company with the koans um so that the, they're there all the time and and part of our lives all the time yeah
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's a, something that people, I think, may not really understand about koans is that they're extremely relational. You know, mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of the koans are, are records of conversations. Right. And that's not an accident. Right. You no, know, these are, these are uh, exchanges between people. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, when a person comes with their, their most important question, And something, some—it's a record of a a moment when something shifted, and that happens in the context of relationship,
2: Mm -hmm. relationship between people, and also relationship with other things in the natural world. I mean, you know, there are stories of people seeing suddenly seeing cherry blossoms. And, you know, and, and I know from my own experience, it can be, um, you know, hearing a, a, the cook cough from the kitchen or, you know, a, a car backfire on the road. And so there's always, there's always a call and response. There's always a relationship. And it's, it's, even it, because it's larger than human, although that's the most common, it gives us this sense of being in relationship with the whole world and all the beings of the world. And I think particularly right now, that's tremendously important. There's a kind of radical empathy in, in the koans. Um, there's the relationship aspect that you're talking about, and the, the way that, that uh, um, awakening always happens in relationships. Um, and there's also that we're, we're, thrown in and out of the bodies and the lives of all these other beings, you know, of animals and trees and, and buses and, you know, everything. Um, and, and, and so th- that's the way the, the self is dealt with. You were talking about how it enlarges things because we realize we, we swap in and out with, with all these other lives and see, yeah, it's that big. It's all, it's all of that.
1: Yeah. 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 It makes me think about how, you know, I think in the beginning of my practice, you know, awakening seemed like something that would be personal. Like I, Megan, perhaps could become awakened. Yeah. And I think something that, um, that shifts, and this is something you talk about in the book is the feeling of that uh, awakening is not primarily a personal process, but it's something that, it, that the whole world is engaged in, and the way, there's a way that the world is in, is awakening, and perhaps maybe you know we can hope that humans can be engaged in a process of awakening. So, I guess a question for you. Um, and you talk about this a bit in the book, but um, maybe you could talk about how do we hold awakening, either a personal awakening or the w- awakening in the world, when things seem to be devolving?
2: Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because I do think that our each of our individual awakenings belongs to the world in some way, and you know, we've just been talking about how it happens in relationship. That's the world coming to get us, you know, the, whatever that, whatever that turning word was, as we say in the tradition, um, that's the world coming to, to, to get us and, and to bring us into that awakening of the world. And that's, that's, that's becoming, um, Complicated to hold, given what's happening in in the world, and I, so I've been thinking a lot about how when you go through your personal one's personal awakening, for most people there are times of tremendous turmoil and difficulty because when you when you go through that gate, you can't leave anything behind, or or, or your experience isn't complete, and so. All of you comes through the gate, all the messy parts too, all the difficult parts too, and sometimes, you know, there, there's a lot of purification that has to happen before you can get there and, and, and it can be really, really tough. And I think everybody, I can't think of anybody who hasn't had times of tremendous struggle where the fault lines in their character and, and their own difficulties and their own agonies become, you know, are, are up get raised by the process. The process is not an escape from those things. It's a way of including all of that. And so if we think about the agony sometimes of our own awakening, the sense that sometimes we go through periods where nothing's happening, you know, it's just seems like it's gone completely fallow. Um, it, It That, you know, that has to happen because all of that has to come, it has to be part of the process. You can't pick and choose and you can't leave anything out. And somehow I feel like the world is at this incredible threshold where it's all, all the really hard, difficult, painful, devastating stuff is right here. And it's and, and just like it is with a, a personal experience. And um, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be able to bring it all through the gate. But boy, it's astonishing to me that it's all here, including the very things that need the most care, the most attention.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe um, if I can pick up on that and expand it a little bit in the chapter in your book, Called the natural world of koans. You talk about koans as a call from the earth that invites our response. Mm-hmm. So, how can koans help us in a time, in this time of climate catastrophe? Both perhaps with um, how to manage our despair, mm-hmm. um, but also how to take skillful action. And any other kinds of um, help or solace that cons might offer us at this very particular time?
2: Yeah, I think that that's so multifaceted. And I feel like I'm just at the beginning of my understanding about that. So I'll just mention a couple of things I can see here at the beginning. And um, part of it has to do with this sense of radical empathy and the sense of, Koans kind of make it impossible to turn away. Um, It's really hard to be in denial (laughs) when you're engaged in, in, in a koan practice because you're so aware all the time, both of how alive everything is and also how threatened it is right now. So there's a kind of holding us up against it that I think they do. I would say... I don't. I think that they help us with our despair by saying, what's it like to feel neither hope nor despair? What if you don't have a position at all about this? What's that like? And that goes against everything in American culture, you know, mainstream American culture. Um, but it's really important to ask, what is it like to be without a position? If you come not knowing, what happens? What becomes possible? What might you see that's really difficult to see if you have a position? Um, and so that's another thing that koans give us is um, that a way to ask questions all the time and a way to hold things provisionally and a way to wonder and a way to not, not have the um, the necessity to land on an outcome or a conclusion, but to hang out in not knowing and uncertainty and be okay with that, even though it's it might be really uncomfortable. And the longer we can do that, kind of the more things become possible, the more things become apparent because we haven't closed down the inquiry too soon. And then another, you know, completely different thing that koans give us is that solace you mentioned, that that there's that sense of the really big view. And um one of the koans that's dearest to me is is a line from a poem that's that talks about a tree older than a for a tree older than the forest it stands in. And there's that sense of that tree older than the forest that we can lean back against anytime. You know, when things feel so painful and difficult and impossible. There is a kind of solace there that then enables us to um, move forward again. So those are just some of the ways that that I'm seeing that that Cohen's can um can help. And again, I'm just at the beginning of that, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Wonderful. Yes. And very much in accord with my experience as well. Thank you for saying that so beautifully. Mm. It is, um, I don't know if I want to say hope exactly, but that kind of enlarged view that Mm -hmm. um, uh, keeps possibilities open.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the questions for me become very simple, like, well, what else would you be doing? (laughs) You know, like you don't need to feel either hope or despair to ask, well, how else would I be spending my time except trying to do what I can about this? regardless of the outcome without knowing what the outcome is going to be would i be doing something different if i knew what the outcome was going to be that's an interesting question yeah
1: thanks yeah so just to shift gears for a moment here you know um my connection to ciis is that i am a graduate of the certificate program in psychedelic studies and therapy
3: mm-hmm.
1: and um, you know many people who are interested in psychedelics uh, for healing um, and you know you're probably aware that they're being used more and more therapeutically these days mm-hmm. um, but there's also with a, a spiritual sensibility that part of what psychedelics can do is to kind of open us up to that larger world um, than is um, easily available to many people. Um, and that a lot of our suffering comes from the sort of tight knot of self that we construct and that psychedelics can be a way of opening that up. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, if you have any thoughts about whether or not the the kind of realms that psychedelics can open to people uh, for in in the service of healing. Is that similar to the territory that is opened in meditation?
2: Yeah, I think it absolutely can be. Um, I, I'm speaking completely as an amateur here. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think it can be. And um, you know, you and I have spoken about how sometimes psychedelics can break something open that's really stuck know, and it, you know, that meditation sometimes can't for some people and that it can be really helpful. And the one thing I would say out of my own experience with both is, um, there's a kind of fantasy that meditate, koan meditation is about getting enlightened and then you're done. So it's like, you know, it's the big bang and then, and then, um, that's that's the point you've reached the point but actually it's about what happens after that it's about um the the interpermeation of that large vision with your particular life how how do those things go together and they make something new in the world and both parts of it your life and this sort of larger larger way that you have now of seeing things um both are necessary and come together. And, and so usually 749 uh, of those 750 koans are about that, <laughs> about that, that bringing those things together and, you know, turning awakening into matter. Um, and so, so my question would, you know, my wondering would be about with psychedelics, what's the equivalent practice of that? given how important it is not just to have the breakthrough but to but to make the breakthrough your life to make it part of your life and together in that way
1: i think it's such a great point you know we talk a lot in in the psychedelic therapy world about integration
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you know as in in meditation you know it's sometimes people do have glimpses and breakthroughs and you know an ability to see the 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 big something much bigger but then it can get lost it can fade it can be feel really separate from ordinary life and so the task with psychedelic therapy is how do we how do how do we make that a living ongoing process
3: mm-hmm. where
1: so that that can stay alive and continue to inform everyday life mm-hmm. relationships and um, the, the sense of uh, the, the meaning and um, and the sense of oneself, and so um, I, I really have come to see meditation practice as a, a really essential part of psychedelic integration. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. So I guess it just you know uh, following up on that, I'm. I'm just wondering if you think that there's any role for psychedelics in Zen. It feels a little out there. I know, but, um, yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I, I, I can see it working in the, in the kinds of ways that you're talking about. And one of the things you and I have talked about is, is how, you know, if we're being really honest, a lot of the, um, extreme physical stuff and psychological stuff that happens in a retreat you know you don't sleep you don't have time to do anything you uh, you know uh, you you sit and sit and sit past you know human endurance and then you've got some idiot teacher challenging everything you, you know you have to say if there's a lot of psychological and physical press that's put on you in a retreat and that's got to be some kind of equivalent to you know s- something that might happen with psychedelics um i just i just would say that i think that you need to have people who are really skilled in both to do it that that would be my one concern i mean y- you've been in retreats you know people have operatic experiences i mean really big things happen and they need um you know they need containment while they need a, a safe container so that they can that experience can be lived out completely. And that's a big deal, you know, and it and it really takes care and attention to do that right. And as long as that's happening, I think it's really interesting. and the the other thing I would say too is um in meditation, you know, there are lots of kind of um, Mm-hmm. Visional experiences one has. one one sees things and hears things and comes to experience things. and and there's always a kind of balance between really um, honoring the images that come to you in meditation. you know, oh, wow, what is this? and 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 welcoming them and working with them, and then not getting derailed by them, stuck by them. And so they come, they have their life, you have a relationship with them, and then they go. And so what's the psychedelic equivalent of that, that you don't get attached to the phenomenon, um, but have the relationship with the phenomenon and then uh, keep going?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, ex- yeah. I think that experience of surrender and letting go is really crucial as is yeah. the experience of containment, yeah. In order to do that, yeah. Thank you. I would love to have you do another uh, reading from your book.
2: So we've been talking about koans. How about we <laughs> we do we do a little bit of a, of a koan? Um, so it, it, interspersed in the book are, are koans and then my commentaries on them. Um, and this is this is a koan that's called falls into a well and um the the commentary i have on it is a way that koans can a a koan can change in over time in your life that, that they're not static that it's not a kind of one time again one time big bang where you get an answer and that stays with you forever actually your relationship with koans can evolve and change because it's not just about the koan, it's about the relationship between the koan and your life and your life is gonna change and the koan will change with it. So this is an example of that. Um, This is from Baling Haojian and he has a series of these questions and answers. So the question is, what is the way? And the answer is, a clear-sighted person falls into a well and this is my commentary on it. The Chinese teacher, Ba Haojian, created a set of three questions and answers that were known as his turning words. This is the middle couplet. Here it serves as an example of how your relationship with a koan can change over time. When I first heard this koan, I burst out laughing because, of course, all the koan practice in the world won't save you from making mistakes. Really, everything we do is a mistake because we can't possibly know all the results of our choices. In an absolute sense, there's no way to get any decision right. So the question becomes more like deciding on the most beautiful, thoughtful, generous mistake you can make under the circumstances and then paying attention to what happens. Pretty soon, what stepped into the foreground of this koan is the idea that Quite often in life, wells are what present themselves to us. Wells are what happens. We are surprised, ambushed sometimes by events. The ground that seems solid under our feet suddenly gives way, and we have to make a choice that yesterday we didn't know existed. Life, it turns out, is full of wells and potholes and interesting portals, And sometimes being clear-sighted means falling into them. Sometimes falling into them is the most generous thing to do. People you care about are in trouble. A planet is in trouble. Do you cross the street or do you fall in? Some people spend a lot of time at the lip of the well, peering over, dropping stones in to see how deep it is, trying to find a way around the opening. Or thinking that they're not ready, that they need to get their lives together or learn to repel. This has its own pain. If a well presents itself, which mistake do you make? My attention shifted from the well to the falling. I thought of Pong Ling Zhao, whose father tripped and fell one day. Ling Zhao threw herself down next to him, and when he asked her what she was doing, she explained, I saw you fall so I'm helping. May we all be blessed with one person whose idea of helping is to accompany us as we trip and fall with a sympathy that is unafraid, unselfconscious, and funny. Then there's Muso Soseki, who went off into the mountains to concentrate completely on his meditation. One night, he finally decided to go to bed after sitting in his garden until late. He didn't bother to light his lantern because he knew the way back, even in the dark. As he stood up, he put his hand out to steady himself on a wall that was supposed to be there. But it wasn't there, and he fell over. He just kept falling all the way through, right into emptiness. He started to laugh, and the laughter didn't stop for a long time. Eventually, the idea of falling took on vaster proportions. Lifetime after lifetime, we fall through the universe, through solar systems and interstellar gas clouds. Now we're falling together through a little planet in one of those solar systems. We find that it's made of carbon and hydrogen, tenderness and regret, light, dark and twilight. It may not be like this everywhere, Life as a molecule in one of those interstellar gas clouds might be ecstatic, surfing the currents of space. Astronomers say that when the clouds bump into each other, they make a sound like chiming. It's not always ecstasy and chiming here. The invitation this particular world extends is a complicated one. But in the big picture, we're falling not through solitary wells, but together accepting the particular invitation of this world together. One day we will fall completely through this world, back into the darkness and whatever comes next. In some Scottish churches, small models of ships are hung among the rafters to commemorate losses at sea. Gazing up at them, I thought of all the souls who sank through the waters all the way to the bottom and then farther, to continue their voyage in the sky. As the light dims in your human eyes for the last time, what will you say of the life that's passing? What has joined its molecules with yours, carved itself into your bones? As the last well presents itself, what will fall with you from this rocky little planet?
1: Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's so lovely and really so helpful, you know, mm. I, as you know, I'm, I'm speaking from a meditation retreat and, you know, so many mistakes are happening and, you know, it's so easy to get kind of, you know, tense about it and, and to feel like um, something, you know, terrible has happened and um, it's so um, such a relief and such an expansion to find the, the, the to, to make the most beautiful mistake possible and to find all the possibilities there. So it's just, um, you know, news you can use. So thank you for that. Do you,
2: do you remember our retreat manual had as its epigraph something from uh, that um, Samuel Beckett used to say, yes. just fail better. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Working on it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. great, thanks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I see that we're coming towards the end of our time. And, um, well, first of all, I want to just thank you, Joan, for, you know, all of your teachings and all of the inspiration that you've offered to so many people and to the tradition. You've really done a tremendous, um, made a tremendous offering um, to, to all of us with your, with your teaching and your words and your example so I'm really grateful for that and, and so grateful to have this book. It's such a, a tremendous um, offering and resource. Um, so thank you. And maybe just the last question um, is uh, kind of what, what's been on your mind since you wrote this book? Is there anything um, that uh, has been you know, kind of coming to you and is feeling important to you now?
2: Yeah. So thank you, Megan. I I really appreciate the, um, the, 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 the depth, um, of this conversation and the warmth of it. It's really great. And the, the last chapter in the book is called dream it on. And it's a way of saying, okay, this is all yours now, you know, dream it on. And, and I certainly see you doing that. And it makes my heart very glad to see the way that you're, you're dreaming it on. Um, yeah the writing the book had an interesting um an interesting and unexpected effect on me which is that I felt like I had requited my duty to the ancestors and um I had I had completed something about teaching and and in doing that it freed me to go deeply into to use a wonderful word that someone brought in and into my idiosyncratic relationship with the koans and I'm really focused now on how the cons might accompany us in climate crisis and in, you know, all the social justice issues and everything that we're dealing with. I think maybe primarily with, with climate crisis, but all of it. Um, and so not having to kind of explain or take into account the whole tradition, but, but really looking, bringing the whole tradition to that one question how do how might it accompany us and help us as we live through this unprecedented time that we've already begun to live live through and I do believe the Collins have something valuable and supportive and challenging um, to say about that
1: yeah yeah wow well, well, thank you for that. And I certainly I think many of us look forward to, you know, your musings and, and, and wisdom and, and offerings in that respect, uh, in whatever way they're they manifest. Thank you. So thank you again, Joan, it's just such a pleasure and a delight to see you and to talk with you and to make this offering for for um, all the people who are watching. Um, you're an inspiration for my practice and for the practice of so many. So thank you for all that you do.
2: Thank you, Megan, have a great retreat.
0: Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle Demedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.